Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the Eco Wild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar, May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now I'm a southern child, southern child, down in Macon, Georgia. Everybody knows where I was born. You're listening to the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast. You can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoorsman. Now let's get to the episode. Presented by Hunting Exchange, a marketplace for serious hunters by serious hunters. Welcome back, everybody, to another Southern Outdoorsman listener success story episode, and happy Friday to everybody. Uh, we've got a great one coming in today uh, from the great state of Louisiana. We've got Cade Clements on here, who just killed an absolute slammer down there in Louisiana. And uh, Cade, i got to say, you're probably feeling pretty good, but uh, how are you doing this evening? Oh, I'm doing pretty good, just making it. <laughs> just making it. Hey, I hear that, man. Listen, deer like that's got to come with a taxidermy bill without a doubt. So uh, you got that in your pocket. But, dude, um, we're going to talk a lot about this deer. I'm pretty excited to have you on, uh, having a listener on from Louisiana. Uh, Louisiana, or our listeners from Louisiana, has been coming in hot and heavy the last few weeks. Um, just uh, the download numbers. So glad Louisiana's still rocking and rolling. And, uh, Kate, just real quick, before we kind of get into this episode, I just had a quick question. When does y'all season close out there, and is it based off uh, just different zones? Oh, uh, yes. There are, there are different zones. I think I'm not 100%, but it's six, seven to eight different zones. And uh, ours, the zone that I hunted in closed the 31st for bow, and then the week prior it was rifle. And But there still is uh i'd say one to two zones open for bow until february 15th i believe okay perfect well awesome well to kind of get it started and uh give another shout out for our louisiana listeners since we just had the louisiana bow hunter kyle uh mopart on here uh, for this monday's episode uh let's kick this off i'm real curious you know kate how long have you been a listener of the podcast and also what caused you to start listening to the show well, I've, I've been a listener for a little over a year now, and I think that I found y'all on Instagram, and I started looking through all the stuff y'all were posting, and then I saw y'all's link to uh, the podcast, and I really just started listening, and I enjoyed everything y'all talked about and the way y'all ran the podcast, and i just been hooked since then. And I've got to ask, have you been like a podcast listener beforehand? Like, were you listening to like this other shows in general or was, you know, our show like one of the first podcasts you actually started to listen to in general? Well, really, I hadn't listened to many podcasts at all. But whenever I started listening to y'all, that made me get into listening to podcasts. And now I've kind of branched out uh, since then to listen to other podcasts besides y'all's. But I definitely would think that y'all's are probably my favorite uh, for sure. Very cool. Well, I always like to ask that because one thing, I, I, I was the same way, you know, when it came to just listening to other shows. Like, of course, we have a show, but previously just listening to all kinds of shows and like, I don't know, the podcast thing is getting, it's becoming way more mainstream, which is which is cool. And there's a lot of things out there, but it's just interesting how somebody may had already been listening to other shows previously. I know I've talked to some people like, I didn't even know there was hunting podcasts out there. I just knew, you know, Joe Rogan or whatever else uh, that they right. might have been listening to. So that's that's pretty cool. But Kate, to kind of uh, keep kicking off the story, I think you named this buck. If you rem- if I remember the message correctly, uh, Big Nasty. 
uh and he's, yes, he's a heavy tined heavy mass buck dude uh which um is super impressive but even more impressive uh, i thought was um i think you put in the message that you sent to us it took 53 hunts to kind of finally make it happen with this deer and we're gonna get to that story in just a little bit i'm very excited to hear about you know what it took to be successful with this buck especially kind of later in the season uh and coming in from a, a pretty high pressure hunting club from what it sounded like with all the other members that were trying to chase this deer too um so there's there's a lot to the story that i'm very excited about which we'll get to a little bit later on in the episode but i want to kind of dive on over and talk about when you started listening to the podcast and up until this point you know what were some of those impress or not really impressive, but a uh, important or impactful episode for you uh, that's really kind of helped you know put you in the right path, or especially played maybe a factor when it came to you know killing this buck. Well, I really the ones that impacted me pretty big was um, episode two ten and two thirteen with Travis Murray from you know I really never I mean I might have heard of the guy but I'd never listened to him before and. Whenever I really listened to him speak on y'all's podcast, you know, it really gave me a lot of knowledge that, and he could break it down good. And one of the things was having a killing wind and uh, in episode 210 where he was talking about him hunting with the ghillie suit and the ground game, um, he was speaking on hunting between food and a bedding area and how deer not near as spooky versus if you're hunting over a food source where they are worried about predators and everything in between versus if you're hunting you know in between where they're just doing a transition yeah so how did that change you know when you heard those episodes and again you know travis murray's a, a classic uh guest that we've had on the show that's been extremely impactful for a lot of people but how did that change your perspective on deer hunting compared to what you were doing previously and maybe things that you've heard from other people previously that after you heard Travis, you're like, oh, maybe a light switch clicked or something where you're like, there's there's more to this than previously what I was doing to be successful. Well, it goes back to the Killing Wind episode. And, you know, I've heard all my life, just as most hunters have, that you got to have a good wind to kill a deer. And, you want to be scent free as much as possible. Obviously, you can't be completely scent free. But several years ago, I was talking to one of my great buddies, his, and then his uncle was telling me how if you want to kill certain big bucks that are really smart, that they use their nose, you have to. Oh, I say use their nose. Use their nose to almost always come in downwind of you. You want to hunt in almost bad wind. And that kind of goes back to something that Travis was speaking on, how you need to use that wind to your advantage. And for those bucks that you want to hunt not quite downwind or upwind, I should say, and just get to the side a little bit of them. And that way that you can still have them come in from their, we're using their nose from downwind and, uh, you'll have that to your advantage. So that was something that was eye-opening for you. And I know when I talked to Travis, uh, when we did that interview, it was something eye-opening for me too, is how that killing wind can be an advantage, uh, especially when you look at it from, from a rifle hunter's perspective, but can be tough with a bow. But one thing I thought was impressive, uh, you kill this buck with your bow. Is that right? Yes, sir. That's, that's correct. So, so with the killing wind, you know, for an archery setup can be extremely tricky just because, 
I mean, you know, an ethical shot with your bow, depending on where you're, you know, hunting, you know, might be, you know, 40, 40 yards or less. In some areas, if it's real thick, it might be sub-20 yards. So that killing wind can really be, you know, you're, you're right on that fine, fine line of getting busted. Um, I've got to ask, you know, well, this might just progress right into the story. Before we get to the story, because I'm sure that's going to play a factor for us, uh, was there anything else that Travis said or anything else that you've kind of picked up that was like, again, it made either more sense after you heard it and started applying it or something that, again, just maybe something that you've learned from maybe something Travis has said or something else uh, that, again, kind of played a factor. Just how you approach, you know, hunting whitetails in Louisiana. Um, yeah, there there was something else. It was in, uh, I think, I believe it was episode 210. Uh, like I said, how he spoke on how spooky deer are when coming to a feed site. So, um, you know, here in Louisiana, it is legal to feed deer uh and i would you know put out corn and rice bran every now and then and deer would all always be so spooky coming in because I, I would be next to bed area, but obviously i wouldn't get too far up in it to run them out and so i finally you know after hearing that i really put it in to my own perspective and i'm thinking how can i do better because they would come in and they find a way to be so spooky that if a limb fall i mean i even have videos of uh because i would record most of my hunts of course i didn't record the one of killing him but um a limb would fall just a tiny little limb and i mean deer would scatter everywhere and blow versus whenever i actually used to wear a ghillie suit when i was younger you know not not the same one as travis but just a little cheap ghillie suit and i would just walk through the woods and you know you'd walk up on deer that are just cruising from their bedding area you know they're they're not spooky they're not worried about anything in the world but just just cruising on to wherever they're going to eat and i mean i've had some walk within five yards of me and you know never even see me until they get downwind of me and it's just kind of mind-boggling how much of a difference that can make getting in between the food source and the bedding area versus hunting over it yeah that is a that is an excellent point uh, and I think it's something that might be overlooked a lot when it comes to this, the podcast and some of these guests uh, is the aspect of like what Travis talked about. Like, again, it was, yeah, it was 210. And I think he might have re- recapped on it on 213 was just how for, you know, his style of hunting, you know, being a traditional archer, you know, hunting food sources was a disadvantage for him because of how spooky the deer were, you know, jumping string and just, you know, a big buck is going to be on super high alert if he's coming to a food source, whether it's a food plot, corn pile, whatever. Um, so, or even like a feed tree, uh, just, you know, oaks dropping. So getting closer towards that buffer between the food and bedding, you have a little bit more kind of natural movement of that deer coming through there where he's less on edge before he's coming to a spot where he's going to be spending potentially a lot more of his time actively feeding, which is a great ambush point for bobcats and, you know, everything else and uh, coyotes and the whole nine yards. So, and hunters. So, that is something that I think a lot of people overlook in, you know, Alabama, uh, it's legal to uh, bait as well on private land and you have a lot of guys do it. And I actually just saw a post. It might've been yesterday where a guy had made a post on one, one of the Alabama deer hunter pages made and, and said that he has started to realize it's been about four or five years since they legalized uh, baiting where you could hunt over the bait, uh, roughly three to three or the five years. I can't remember exactly the dates, but he said he started noticing now that these big, these older bucks are not coming to the bait, or if they do, like you said, they're extremely spooky. 
but this majority of the time they're going way, way, way downwind of it, scent checking it, and uh, only really coming to the food source if there's a hot dough on that food source, uh, which I found found was very interesting because that's what I was hearing from a couple other guys. Ever since that baiting uh, law got legalized in Alabama again a couple years back, you know, a lot of guys were killing some really nice deer on bait just because the deer hadn't seen it. But now since, the, you know, they've been out there and these deer that are now five, six years old have grown up with bait uh, on the landscape and on the in the areas, for them to get that old now, they can't just be walking to a bait pile whenever they want uh, without getting shot. So right. uh, definitely I think what Travis talks about is, you know, should be eye-opening for everybody as in if you are in a situation, especially if you're hunting like a bait station uh, where it's a designated area, you're putting corn, rice, bran, whatever out, you know, when it's legal uh, in your state to do so, um, to back off that and, and try to find that, that travel path that that buck's coming through. So not only do you catch them before, you know, before it's dark on an afternoon hunt, but also you get a little bit more natural movement where you might have a better opportunity to actually get a shot at them. Right. Well, because, you know, a lot of those deer, you know, you'll see them come and they'll stick out. They won't come out in the opening to where your pile is at or your bait station. They'll sit back in the edge of the woods and just, you know, survey the area until it's too dark to, for them to come in or too dark to shoot. And then they'll come in after. So, you know, so if you're set up in between their bedding area and the bait station, you can catch them doing their, like you said, their more natural movements. Yeah, absolutely. And again, if you think about it, uh, and, and this, well, if you think about it, you know, if a deer is getting as old as they, you know, can get, you know, five, six, seven plus years old, um, you know, these bucks for them to live and also be a solo animal and not have like a, you know, a group of does is a little bit different because a group of does, they, they have all the eyes and the nose and ears and everything that you know, it gives them a little more of advantage. Uh, but for a lone buck, you know, for him to get that old, he's got to be very wary, especially in these areas where there's a lot of hunting pressure. You know, there's bait out there for them, um, and they got to learn quick to get that old, which kind of brings up something with this deer. Did, by any chance, did you do you have an idea of how old he was or potentially had gotten him aged? Yes, I actually, uh, I actually do. So here's a crazy start. Uh, a crazy part of the story is so last year I put my buddy on this stand over there at our club, and there was no feed out in or, or anything. You know, we have food plots out there that deer will come feed in. But I was hunting a particular deer last year, and I put him on this other stand, and he sees this giant buck walk about 10 yards from the stand. Uh, he was in a box stand, like a gun stand, and it, he sent me a video of it, and he was wanting to know if he could shoot it. And I said, that's definitely a young deer that's going to be a giant. And... You know, come to find out this year after I was looking back at that video, it's it's the deer that I killed this year. And uh, and there's no doubt about it because you can see the kickers coming off and everything. And, yeah, the deer, fast forward, the deer came back four and a half this year. And in that video, he was three and a half. Awesome. And he was it was huge. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well sweet. So we're going to get into that whole story. Um, but I, I definitely think like the whole aspect on, you know, especially on this private land stuff, which we may be doing some stuff different this coming year. Uh, Andrew's talked about potentially joining a club uh, to not only have some different hunting opportunities, but really give us a better, well-rounded uh, approach to some of these topics and some of these questions. Because uh, it's been so long since I've been in a club, um, and it's been a long time for Andrew as well. I think it's been almost 
almost 10 years since he's been in a club. Um, so we can kind of talk about some of the stuff like what Travis talks about and, and apply it onto that private land that's still getting hammered with a lot of hunters. Um, so we can kind of be a little more related to some of these uh, listeners. Because we surveyed a lot of guy, a lot of you guys that listen to the podcast, and I think it's over like 65% or maybe even 70% of the listeners hunt privately. And, and then there's, you know, I don't know, 15, 20% of you guys that hunt both, and then, you know, a small percentage that hunts just public. So um, definitely I find, like, that private land tactic. There's a lot there, especially when you have other members on a club that are baiting. Um, there's a lot of right. strategy to try to figure out, okay, well, if they're catching a big buck on camera, you know, you're not maybe going to go hunt a guy's stand, but, you know, how can you figure out how that big buck's getting there and go in there and take advantage? And it seems like that's what you did uh, with this story, which, again, we can kind of segue over and, and really talk about this buck and talk about the story here because you hunted a, a ton and finally was able to make it happen. But where does this story kind of start with this buck, you know, when it comes to, you know, did you have trail cam history with him? I know you said your buddy saw him the last year, again, a uh, year previously, uh, or previous. But what is kind of the history with this deer? And then, you know, how did you start formulating a game plan of how you were going to try to go and target this specific buck? Well, um, I actually saw him, I, I realized this, this year after I killed him, I saw him at the end of the year last year. And I just thought that he was, a, I thought that he was four and a half last year, but he was apparently a, a giant three and a half year old that was probably already roughly 140, I'm going to guess. And um, so, yeah, this summer, or I guess after summer, this fall, whenever they started growing their horns back, you know, and in velvet and everything, I, I had pictures that this deer would never come up close to the camera at first. I would just see him in the back. And I thought he was just a monstrous eight point. You couldn't see, I couldn't even see his ninth mainframe point because he had so much mass and his velvet was so thick, I guess. I just thought he was a huge eight point because he wouldn't ever come close. And finally, once I started getting good pictures of him, I realized that he was a mainframe nine, and at this point, I still couldn't see many of his kickers, as many as he had. I could see a few, and fast forward to, you know, a couple of days before October 1st, which is when the Louisiana bow season opens, I could see that he had shedded his velvet already, and he was a mainframe nine with about six more scoreable points that were over an inch. And then several more that were, you know, right there at the inch mark. Um, but that's how it all started there. So you had him on trail camera uh, in the summertime and kind of all the way up to, seems like, or, you know, right when bow season started opening up. Um, predominantly, it seems like a lot of those trail cam photos and or videos you may have had of him was on some of those bait stations. Is that correct? Yes, sir. I, I had a few more out and because I was, I was really – once I got him, I was trying to find, you know, his, his exact bedding area because I had a set stand there, lock on. But, you know, I hate to just hunt that one spot for a deer whenever all these other people are hunting, whenever I could make a move, which that ends up later on. That is what I did. But I did put out some separate cameras on trails because a lot of those trails on our club, I mean, it's like there's a lot of tall grass coming out of the bedding areas and, the trails are unbelievably beat down. So, I mean, and there's not that many of them. So they travel on each trail very, very predominantly. Um, so you can put a camera out on a trail and get most of the deer in the area just on that trail. 
well, let's. I want to talk before we get more into story. Can you give us a little more backstory, like? When it comes to this property, you know, how big is the property? You know, how many members do y'all have? And also, this is going to be like really four questions all in one you can answer all at one time. Uh, you know, how big is the property? Uh, how many members do y'all have? Also, what region of the state is it in? Um, and then what is the habitat like on the property? Okay, sure. I can break that down. Um, so the property is in northeast Louisiana. It's along the Mississippi River. Um as Travis used to talk about the cuckleburrs, uh, you know that where he couldn't pick out a bedding area. Uh, there's a lot of places like that, and um, there's it's let's see, it's six thousand nine hundred acres, I believe. It's split into two sections. Uh, the north end, where I killed the buck, is five thousand something, I believe, and then the south end is just under 2,000 acres and there are I believe 40 members um, yeah there's 40 members on the club and the terrain you know it's the Mississippi River bottoms so a lot of it is the same with there's cuckleburrs everywhere there's willow trees pecan trees persimmon trees there's a, a, a lot of ridges through there there's not you know, there's not really any hills, though. There's just ridges and old slough bottoms, pretty much. Very cool. Man, listen, I'm, I'm over here kind of drooling just thinking about this property, dude. Holy crap. Uh, oh, I, and it's, <laughs> I, I'd rather hunt there than anywhere else in the world. I'm telling you, it's a special place. I'll tell you for sure. Oh, I don't, I, I, listen, I don't blame you at all. I mean, dude, Northeast Louisiana, which is known for giants, dude, off the Mississippi River. I mean, that is some, that is awesome, awesome, awesome stuff, um, which is cool because we're, the, of course, this is going to play a factor for the story when we kind of talk a little bit more about this deer. But that kind of gives the listeners and myself a little bit more of a, an understanding kind of background of, you know, what's the property look like? What's the hunting pressure like? You know, uh, you know, size of property, just the whole breakdown, really, in general. Again, talking big river bombs here. Um, and again, some of those secondary ridges, which, when you mean ridges, you know, guys that live in that area, I, I, when some people listen, they hear a ridge like, oh, you know, you know, 50, 60 feet of elevation change or something like that. When you talk about a ridge out there, like how, I mean, are you talking like a ridge, like the guys talking about in these, you know, river bottoms, there's like a four or five foot tall ridge, or are you talking like a little bit bigger terrain than that? Um, it's not too drastic. I'm thinking more of like, you know, at the most, you know, eight feet, but usually, like you said, four to five feet. It's just, it's just ridges that, so whenever it floods, a lot of our deer, they'll go to those ridges first uh, before they decide to cross the levee and go sit. Because I don't know if you've ever heard, but, you know, when the Mississippi River floods, it really can hurt the, the deer population very badly because uh, if they don't close the season fast enough, all the deer from inside the levee are just sitting out in fields of, I'm talking about, you know, five to 600 deer. You know, it's just unbelievable deer. I mean, you 150s and 160s that you've never even seen coming off your club before, you know, that you didn't even know you had. They're just walking at the top of the levee, trying to dive back in the water as you drive by, trying to figure out how they can get back to their home, bedding area, and there's no way because it's 10 feet underwater. And sometimes they don't, the Louisiana Wildlife and Fisheries don't close the season as fast as they need to, in my opinion. And a lot of the deer get shot out in those fields whether it be legal or 
you know, people just driving up and down the levees and the roads and shooting them and getting out of there. You know, it happens. I've seen it with my own eyes, and it's just kind of a terrible thing to see. Oh, yeah, wow. I, yeah, it's, that's something that, you know, I, I've been in and hunted you know, in around areas like that, but never have, like, lived and, and had a lot of experience here. So I, I can't imagine, you know, just from a, a, a deer's perspective – uh, when that water does come up and it really does push them out of a, a, a pretty large area uh, when the river comes up. Um, so I, I can see how that can be a, a huge factor for, you know, deer that's been kind of isolated in their, you know, you call it a sanctuary, wherever, wherever they've been living the whole season. And once, once or twice a year, depending on how that river flows and, and drops back down, you know, they're getting pushed out of there to higher ground, more inland and, uh, can see how that can, you know, be a, a huge factor on, on just the deer, uh, as they get shifted around. But, you know, going back to this specific deer, I, I want to talk a little bit more about, you know, the hunt and then this season, how it progressed, because again, you hunted a ton, it seemed like to get to the point of actually taking this deer with your bow. Um, so again, early bow season, you had some images of him. You know, how did you start formulating, you know, a plan to go after this buck? Uh, and what were some of those steps throughout the season that kind of got you to the point of when you actually shot him? Well, you know, I, I was getting those trail camera pictures pretty early, and I knew he was for sure number one on the hit list. And whenever I was getting pictures, I actually thought that he was older than that because uh, really what we want is to shoot five-and-a-half-year-old deer if they're nine-point or bigger. And – um which obviously i don't regret shooting that deer it's like a once in a lifetime deer for me and uh either anyways so i was getting those pictures of the deer and i was really trying to figure out where his bedding area was because you know if you can find the deer's bedding area and at least get close to it you can just about kill that deer at any point uh just about you know obviously it's not that perfect and not that you know, 100%, but I was mainly just trying to find his bedding area. So finding his bedding area was the biggest takeaway. You know, you, you talked about the cuckleburrs and, and just like the, the amount of cover out there in some of these areas. When you were trying to isolate his bedding area, what were those steps? I mean, you were, were you bouncing cameras back and forth to trying to figure out what trail he's coming out of and then kind of almost like backtracking them? Like what did all that all entail? Well, I was running, I started off, you know, running one camera, um, and then I, as close the season, as it got closer to the season, I put out three more on, I put out another bait pile on the other side of this lake, it's called Mowered Lake, and, um, because I wasn't really sure if, because all out there, it was just all grass, I'm not 100% sure on what kind of grass it is, but it's like, it's kind of white bladed grass, it's roughly like five to six feet tall, and, it's for sure bedding area. I've jumped deer up there, you know, all my life. And I know, I just know I've seen them bed in it. And anyway, it's so big. It's, I don't know, it's probably two to 300 acres. It's huge. And I just, I couldn't figure out where I'd be able to kill him at. Cause I've always hunted that same stand, but as many, I knew as soon as people started getting that deer on camera at their own spots that, he may want to go to their spot before mine. So I was really wanting to get closer to his so-called home, his bedding area, if I could, rather than try to pull him out of it to come further to my bait pile. So I started running four cameras in total, the one at the original bait site, and then I put two on trails, and then I put a separate bait pile out 
and he was coming to both but i noticed that he was going to the secondary bait pile more often and then there was a few daylight pictures um that i'd get of him on this one particular trail and it wasn't very often but i think those days that he would get up on his feet that that was pretty close to where he was living and it was kind of in the dead center of this field which if you hunt the tree line it's not too far but it was on, on the edge of this lake which made me think that he was kind of getting on the close toward the edge of that lake so he could get water and you know still be close to food and everything and that's pretty much how i got all started off there House of Game Calls Dixie Hen Slate was just voted the overall best turkey call by Field and Stream Outdoors, and trust me, it's super easy to run and be extremely dynamic when you're in the turkey woods. Now, we've mentioned a couple of these calls in the past, like the Spurmaster and the Success Call in a past episode with both Gary Vines and Lyle Gilbert of Houndstooth Game Calls. And it was funny enough, y'all actually bought every Spurmaster call and Success Call they had. Now, pay attention to their website. They're going to have some more come up in stock in the next few days. So when they come available, make sure you get one if you did not purchase one before they sold out last time. Both the Spurmaster and the Success Call are fantastic for hunting high-pressure turkeys, whether you're on a hunting club where you have a lot of other members hunting those same turkeys, or if you're on public land. Again, both of those calls will make you sound a little bit different from everybody else and be a lot more subtle in your calling technique and be able to really help close those distance with those gobblers. So if you want to give Houndstooth Game Calls a try, go to houndstoothgamecalls.com use the promo code SOP24. Again, promo code SOP24 for 15% off houndtoothgamecalls.com. Now, another thing that I'm curious with, which is just, you know, when a lot of guys hunt clubs, um, well, just speaking on clubs here, you know, a lot of guys have what they call, like, they got their stand. Like, you, you have a mix of people that are always on clubs. You got some guys that are, every now and then you get someone that's, like, real hardcore, they're kind of moving around, running, gunning on a club. But a lot of guys really just put up a ton of, you know, ladder stands, lock-ons, whatever, and they have, like, their spots or shooting houses, whatever the, whatever the situation is. For this deer, when you started kind of fine-tuning where you thought he was at, I know you said that you had him in an area where you had a, a permanent lock-on that was set up in a tree, but did you get to the point where, like, hey, I need to kind of be a little bit more mobile on this deer? I know you had kind of, you know, mentioned that a little bit earlier, but you know, what was that like as in, you know, your approach to like trying to move a little bit closer to him and get in a position where you could possibly kill him? See, I did. Uh, I was thinking, because he was coming more to the other cameras than the one. He would obviously come at 2 a.m., but just because the deer comes at 2 a.m. doesn't mean anything, really. they just bouncing from pile to pile, you know. It's just what they do. They could venture out, you know, a really long distance at 2 a.m., if they're coming right after dark or right before daylight, you know, that's a little different story. But at the lock-on stand that I'd had, he was really only coming at 1 a.m., 2 a.m., you know. So he obviously, that was one of his last decisions from the way I was thinking about it. And um, I was thinking that I needed to move closer to the tip of that lake. So, I, I mean, I'd hunted that lock-on for a pretty good while before I decided to do this uh, because I was in my mind, I just didn't want to screw up and, you know, run him out of his uh, um, bedding area. I didn't want to run him out of there as much as he was coming consistently. He just wasn't coming in the daylight or even really that close to it. So I was just sticking with it for a pretty good while. But after about, I'd say, roughly 25 to 30 hunts in, I finally just said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to have to make a move because – 
as all these people are hunting him, you know, 11 people actively hunting this deer. And there was so much pressure on this deer from people driving rangers by, you know, people coming in right before daylight, not too far from my stand. And, I mean, there was times that I really, I, I did get a little frustrated because, you know, there's people that would come within, you know, two or 300 yards of my stand five minutes before daylight and, or then they parked their ranger there or something. And, you know, there is rules on the hunting club, but not necessarily all of them get enforced as much as they need to. And, you know, that's just kind of part of it. You get to hunt pretty good deer on a club. You have to deal with a whole lot of people. And besides that, there was all of those people that were hunting their, that deer. They were no distance from me at all. I, the farthest person away was probably seven to 800 yards. And so that makes, you know, between nine and 11 different bait sites in, I don't know, a, a 800 yard radius. So it was so hard to really pinpoint what he was doing because he would go from bait site to bait site. Everybody was getting him on camera. You know, I'm just thinking any day now, someone else is going to kill him. And after it got so long, I mean, I thought I had actually a pretty good chance because no one else could figure him out. So I thought, you know what, maybe, maybe I can. And I made that move toward him. And, you know, after I, I did, Oh, okay. Once I did make the move, I would, he would, uh, he would be coming at about 4 a.m. And I would run him off all the time. This is before I put up a cell camera there. Uh, and then there was some days that he was there at 4 a.m. at the bait site. And I had put that cell camera there. And I didn't go hunting because I did not want to run him off from that spot. And I just sat there and watched him. And he would leave about five minutes before daylight. And he did that for a week. And so finally, you know, and every morning of that week, I'd get up to go hunting. And it would kill me to not go sit in the stand, but I know he's right there. And I know if I run him off, it's just going to make it even worse. So I didn't. I would only go in the evenings, you know, because at that time of the year, it's so hot. You know, the deer really aren't going to move good before, I'd say, at least where I'm at before five o'clock usually only see them around six or so because at that time of the year it won't get dark until 7 30 and um so that's a, that's what uh that's all I got for that part about it well uh another couple of questions I've got when it comes to these other hunters these other members that are you know on this deer like they've got images of them they're all about them what kind of information were you hearing from other people? I mean, I know you said like, you know, it seems like he was on all these other guys' cameras on their bait stations, but I mean, did you ever get any kind of uh, idea of like what some of these other guys were trying to do to, in order to kill this deer? I mean, were they, did it sound like they were just sitting on the bait stations? I mean, did you get any kind of intel like that from any kind of conversations or anything you heard from other members? There was, they were moving around pretty good because there was the way our club works. I should have told you this from the start. Uh, we don't have necessarily set stands. You're allowed to put out lock ohms and everything and put out all temporary stands that you want. Um, and you're allowed to climb and, you know, use a saddle, whatever you'd like to do, ground blind. But in order to hunt this place, you have to choose, you have to go to the draw. It's, uh, we call it the draw. It's where you go sign in and let everyone know where you're hunting. 
and it's at 5 a.m. And on our, we have a huge cutout board of our property, the north end and the south end, and it's divided up into like 90 sections and a small or a pretty good portion of the club is bow only and then the rest you can hunt gun or bow and um but anyway it's cut into sections like i said and it has a number on it and basically if the same people want to go to this designated area you draw a number out of the bag and whoever gets the lowest number gets to choose that area and so there was times that someone did want to go to the same area as me because they had a stand in the area because an area i'm just going to take an estimate here is i don't know uh 200 acres probably and it is an area so it's a pretty pretty big area and uh my stand was it, it, actually i had it in a good spot because it was right on the line of an area called 31 and 29 so I could really choose either one. If someone wanted to choose the other area, I could choose 29 or vice versa. So I was in a pretty good situation there because there was times that they pulled the area I wanted to go to and I would just have to, you know, stick it out and go sit somewhere else or I'd be able to do the, you know, the opposite of the one that they wanted to get. And um, so it, it was pretty tough sometimes with everybody wanting to hunt that one particular deer um but i do know that there was people climbing and there was people with ground blinds out on i mean most of them would have been hunting bait sites and they would have had multiple bait sites out which that's that's what i do kind of in a way i wish that we couldn't bait just so that whenever one people or not one people whenever a lot of people want to hunt the same deer you don't just have 10 bait sites out within five to six hundred yards because that kind of ruins everything in a way because you, you can't you can't really do that that's not a deer's natural you know the way they feed but that's that's pretty much all we got on that yeah particular subject. well like um you know I, I, that's something that's a reason why i kind of hope andrew does uh, get in a hunting club this year because i want to get access to property. I want to go as a guest. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to become a member. I don't want to put the money into a club, but I want to come as a guest once or twice and walk a property. But I'm curious again, in areas like that, where you just have a lot of bait stations, how those deer interact with those bait stations, especially the older bucks and how they might go in between those bait stations in thicker cover and just scent check them, but don't actually necessarily go to them during hunting hours. Um, because I can see like from your you know standpoint, it could be extremely frustrating, uh, when you're trying to hunt a particular deer and, you know, you've got, you know, a station out where you're just trying to get inventory of, of, you know, you know, where he's coming through and also have other cameras out, but everybody else is doing the same thing in a, in a general area. So it's like, well, what's one, why, you know, may he be, you know, in your little spot that you're kind of focusing on and kind of bouncing around compared to like one of these other guys' spots. Um, so I can see that being extremely frustrating, but again, kind of comes back to, you know, how does a deer even get to, again, like four and a half years old in an area with, you know, uh, quite a bit of pressure. There's a lot of baiting, um, even in an area that may be boat only, you know, when you have that many guys that are hunting an area, um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of pressure. I mean, there's a lot of opportunity for people to shoot deer. So, uh, definitely had to figure out a way to get around that, which we had a guest, uh, Kevin Tolis, 
um, who we've interviewed, uh, I guess it was back last year. Uh, well, I mean, last year it was like the 2020-2021 season. And um, he did this very well on, on hunting clubs, as in he figured out how deer were going to uh, food plots. And all these guys would sit on these food plots. He would go and hunt the perimeter like these buffer areas in between food plots. You may have food plots up on top of these little ridges, and then there'd be a big, thick, nasty drainage in between them. And he'd get down there in that drainage and kind of find where these bucks were kind of cruising and cutting around these food plots where these guys, they weren't seeing them during daylight, but they had plenty of nighttime photos. And he was killing those bucks in areas that most of other people weren't going to in and around, you know, these, you know, food plots. So right. I think it could be very similar to the bait stations, especially if you have a bait station that's like predominantly out there for the whole season. It'd be different if a guy throws corn out in one area for two weeks and then picks up and moves to another area uh, and, and pours out more corn, which I don't see. I don't think that would be much of an issue. I think most guys, if they've got a bait station, they're going to be they're going to be putting corn, rice bran, whatever they're going to be using for probably the whole season, if I had to guess. Um, and I'm sure that's probably what you ran into. Um, but again, I can just see the frustration, uh, happening where, you know, you've got a big deer on camera. There's a bunch of other guys that get the same deer on camera and it's like a, you know, who can get to them first kind of situation, uh, going back and forth. So, um, also one other thing I, I found very interesting. You were talking about your club was the drawing method, uh, to kind of keep right. where the pressure is not super, super high, at least when that one person's in that area, as long as everybody abides by the rules, where only one person can hunt a certain section at a time, um, right? Which is, I mean, that's that's, that's it's a uh, it's a double edged sword because for you it could be really awesome if you get drawn for it. It also sucks if you don't get drawn for it and someone else get, gets drawn for that little area. Um, so that that is super super interesting. And by the way, I was going to ask, uh, what is on this club? What is the uh, the regulations on uh, family members hunting out there and or guests? Um, I think that you can bring up to, I believe it's three guests at a time, but any deer that they kill, obviously it goes on your membership, you know, and you know, I mean, there, you can shoot whatever. It's just, like I said, whatever they shoot or choose to shoot, whether it's, you know, against the rules or legal, it's on your membership. So, gotcha. but like, if you wanted to come down, you could come hunting with me and it'd be completely legal and you're welcome to actually i was going to tell you that <laughs> well, very very cool i appreciate that well I'll, i want to get back towards this deer just because again i find the story i find everything really interesting just because how many people knew about this deer um which doesn't always happen you know some of the guys that we interview especially if it's on public land they don't know who else had the deer on camera or if it's on private land they may not be yeah. talking to the other members uh, but this deer is as significant as he is because he's a freaking monster um uh, but also just how um I guess you could say prominent of a buck he is. It's the kind of deer that people are going to be talking about uh, without a doubt. They're like, oh man, look at this giant again on camera. So let's fast forward a little bit. So that first couple weeks of bow season, you know, it, it's, you know, getting a little frustrating. You said you had like 25 sits or so um, without much luck, especially for this specific deer. And you said you started kind of changing it up and had, you're like, Hey, I'm going to move towards him. So what changed and, and how did you kind of move towards him? And what did that kind of scenario play out? Because, not to kind of jump ahead too far ahead, but what was the date when you killed this deer? November 12th. Okay. November 12th. So, I mean, that's, you know, only, um, what, a 
uh, 42 days or so uh, since season came in, so pretty early on in the year. Um, yes, sir. So what kind of switch when you were like, hey, I'm going to be a little more aggressive. I'm going to go towards this deer and, and set up a little more aggressive. You know, what did that look like? Well, I, I really was just thinking after I think it was roughly 25 to 30 hunts, somewhere in that area that I wasn't really seeing him. I wasn't making any progress, but yet there was a few times on two of those trails that, he would walk by in the daytime, you know, between eight to nine o'clock or right at dark. And I, I knew that that had to be at least near his bedding area because he wasn't moving much at all. As much as many rangers and side by sides that were driving by there and people walking around, hanging stands, putting up ground blinds. You know, I, I just knew I needed to be as close as I could to that bedding area without running him out and so i sure enough found a tree and i hung a, a lock on there and started hunting there and um that oh back to the other story i think you said his name was Kel kevin tullis is that what you said yes sir uh about hunting in between the food plot and uh What'd you say? A hunt in between the food plot and what? Yeah, he, he would actually just get in between the food plots. It, this is before baiting was legal, so right. you know the the main area that guys would sit would just be on these these small food plots, and he would just get off in between them. Whether you know the food plots were on two you know ridges next to each other, and there's a big valley in between them. He'd get down there and, and cut buck sign that where the bucks were you know kind of staying low or, or they were going around scent checking these food plots but not actually coming out into them before daylight and he was killing them, you know midday and all times of the day down in these little areas where just nobody was hunting because everybody was hunting these food plots up on top of these ridges okay yeah that's 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 what i thought you said i was just kind of confirming so my stand is is actually in between two ridges and it's an old slough bottom full of like button willows you know the baby willow trees that uh you know they're probably i don't know two and a half inches wide and it's full of that you can't see you can see as far as you want to shoot with a bow i mean you can only see like 15 yards in every direction just about you might can see their feet at 50 that's about it it's so thick in there uh that's where my original lock on stand was where and i've had success there for many years i actually i didn't mention it but i have pictures and videos of a deer i passed on that was a 10 point and he was it was like october 2nd right as season opened i mean i just had my mind set on that the deer i ended up killing big nasty and i mean this hammer of a 10 point i'm gonna give him the benefit of the doubt and say 148 inches and he was probably gonna touch 150 and he came in, and uh, I'll have to send y'all a picture on Instagram of him. I mean, because I, I didn't shoot him because I was holding out, and I was only going to get to shoot one big deer here this year because I do have brothers and family that want to come hunt, and I'm not going to take away from them hunting. So I passed it, and it was a giant. I mean, one of the biggest deer I've ever had in bow range, and not to mention I've never killed a deer in velvet. And he was standing there at 20 yards for probably 45 minutes. And it was one of the hardest things I ever had to do to watch him walk away because he was probably 22 inches wide. Uh, huge buck. I passed him, and then I passed another eight-point that was probably 
of one mid 130s probably just i'm past so many good deer that i would have shot any other year in a heartbeat most people would everybody on the club would have shot both of those deer that i passed on without a doubt but i just have a mindset on the one that i killed and it ended up paying off so i'm not mad about it whatsoever no, it's, it's but, having that determination, and that's kind of like something that Bobby Worthington, uh, who we've interviewed quite a few times now, uh, he talks a lot about that. He he wants when he finds a particular buck he's hunting, he's only going after that buck, and he's not gonna he's gonna kill that buck, um, not out of luck, but out you know on purpose. He's gonna kill that deer on purpose. He he's not he's the kind of guy which is interesting. It's not my, it's not my take, but it's the way he hunts is. He's not wanting to kill a deer because of luck. He wants to kill a deer because he knows the deer. He's going to find that deer, and he's going to literally hunt that deer down and get that deer, deer killed, which is really, really interesting. It seems like kind of that you had that little bit of a take this year that you had this one particular buck you know, in your sights, and you weren't going to let anything else get in the way of it. Right. Um, but back, back to the deer, uh, once I moved areas, so – Somewhere in between, uh, after a few hunts out of that lock-on near where I had pinpointed his bedding area, I was, you know, training my dog in the woods because she's a duck dog, and, you know, I was just working with her, and I managed to step off in a, a hole through the leaves, and I had a partially torn tendon in my ankle, and it really kind of put a twist to things there because man i was hobbling around and i just really didn't think i could climb up in the tree i probably could have but it, it was just everyone told me not to doctor told me not to and so i ended up popping up a ground blind underneath that tree and i brushed it i mean i don't know that i've ever seen a ground blind bro i spent two days about five hours in each day brushing that ground blind to where it was hidden like you've never seen before <laughs> i'm talking about because i wanted it to be because it, it's hard to ground hunt over a bait site in a way because you know you're eye level with the deer and they're already spooky enough coming to a bait site as it is kind of so that happens you had a brush in your ground blind there so what was kind of like that next step you know um you know i guess you're starting to get into like november time frame you know right. what's what's kind of happening you know you're still catching him on trail camera and uh you know what else had it have what else um god i can't even talk what else happened that was like hey i need to either fine-tune what i'm doing or keep adjusting because you know i haven't got that deer killed nobody else has killed that deer so far so you know what did that kind of look like once you kind of again you got injured brush the ground blind in we start talking about you know in november um you know what what else was kind of happening up to that point Okay, yeah. Uh, so at this point, um, he had been coming ever since I moved over to this spot. He had been coming to the bait site every night, and there was actually one day that I, I literally hunted. I think just about every day except for one morning, he was there when I was. Uh, I had to make up some school because I'm in I'm in college at Louisiana Tech, but I scheduled my classes where I could hunt this deer because I got it on camera early enough for the fall quarter i could schedule them around so that i could hunt this deer and i um was getting him every day or every night i should say but that one day he did slip up and it got me real excited and i went and hunted him pretty hard for the next 
or just every single day, morning and evening. And I would see every single buck, every deer, but him. I mean, there was times that, or another thing about hunting over the bait site, which is tough, you know, whenever you get nine to ten of those mature does in there within 20 yards, you can't even hardly move your eyeballs because those suckers can ruin a hunt as fast as you can blink. I mean, there was, it did happen a few times that uh, before I was even in the ground blind that uh, it'd just be those old does because there's some does in there that I would guess that are six-plus years old. I killed one doe this year that was aged at 10 out of that same area, and there's just some does. They're just old gray and almost dark looking and they come in and stare at my stand but before i made the move there were some that knew where my stand were and they'd come in there and stomp before and they would sit behind a tree where i couldn't shoot them of course and that's been happening for a long time now but some of the bucks i just kind of brush it off because it happened so often but back to the area where i moved um where his bedding area was i would see every buck but him just about every day it got to the point i was getting very frustrated because he would come in you know seconds or, or not seconds minutes after dark after i'd head out and I, I would try to slip in and out every day which was kind of tough hunting over a bait site because where i was at i mean there was so many deer coming in there i would see like even early season like 30 deer hunt i mean it was pretty wild the amount of deer i was seeing without it being the rut or anything when deer should more likely be on their feet and um i would just kind of try to slip out of there which I, I mean they would make a good bit of racket running off and sometimes they would snort at me which you know would get me kind of worried but sure enough by then i would have a cellular camera out and he would show up five ten minutes after dark and i just knew he would eventually slip up and so I ended up not hunting for, let's see, it would be the three days before I killed that deer. So I guess November 9th, uh, he showed up and I didn't hunt because I was doing some stuff with school. And the way he was coming was he would come at 4 a.m. And I think shooting light at that time was roughly 6.05 or so. And he would leave at like 610 next day, which, you know, he wasn't coming in daylight, but he was staying till daylight. And next day he did the same thing. And the day after that, which I hunted those evenings, but I was doing stuff in the morning where I couldn't make it there. And November 12th, uh, or I say that November 11th, I went over there that night because we have a camp there. And I stayed up. I was getting pictures of him all night on my camera. I could hardly sleep because I was so excited because two days before he had stayed after. And I knew that if I went in like I had normally been going in, I would just run him off and he wouldn't come back out. I mean, there was hardly any chance he would come back out because it was still early season. And they were really the predominant moving, movement times were, you know, right at daylight and right at dark. And so I just did something that, you know, I'd never done and I haven't known many people to do it either with my leg being hurt. I went into the stand 
at 2.45 in the morning because he had been coming at 4 every day. And I just sat there and just, I tried to doze off and I just, I couldn't because I just knew that he was going to be, oh, actually, sorry, I had to fast forward, or I had to rewind back here. When I was going to sign in to my stand, this is probably the craziest part. I can't believe I didn't even mention this. I saw this deer in our camp yard by where you sign in. Him in the same buck that he had, he runs with every day. It was a probably 125-inch eight-point, and I saw him. He came across in front of my four-wheeler, and this morning, I, uh, I believe it was in the upper 20s. It was pretty cold. And I just, I freaked out because I'd never seen him in person. And he ran within, I mean, I'm not even exaggerating. He ran within 10 yards of me. He had been sitting in there. And for some reason, we always see the biggest bucks in our camp yard where everybody's camps are at, which no one was there other than our caretaker that day. And, but so anyway, I went to sign in and he came barreling across there. And I was like, that's awesome. I can't believe he's all the way over here because my stand was probably, a half a mile from there and i was like well the only bad thing about that is if it's all the way over here you know i'm probably not going to see him when i go hunting this morning because this was at 2 30 in the morning and so i got to sign in and i headed off to my stand and i eased up and instead of I, i've been parking you know a long way because i didn't think it was my four-wheeler or anything but just to be precautious there was times i'd walk a full mile into my stand and not even drive anywhere but i parked and walked at least 800 plus yards to my stand and i was there set up by about three o'clock and so i'm just sitting there and just i ran deer off going in but it was so early i knew that there was no problem with it being the middle, just about still the middle of the night and I can hear deer walking around and everything. Of course, the bad thing about it is my cell camera had just died like at 11 p.m. that night. So I wasn't really sure what was there. I could just hear deer out in front of me. And so I'm just sitting there waiting. And I couldn't even, I have games on my phone that I sometimes play. And I was so hyped up, I couldn't even pull out my phone. I couldn't play any games. Because <laughs> I just, I was thinking that, yeah, I don't know what's out in front of me. And so here it comes, time's passing, and I can hear deer walking around. And I even heard, I don't really know for sure, but it sounded like a bobcat, something. It kind of did like this screech. You know, it wasn't an owl or anything. I know what that sounds like, but it let out this pretty crazy cry, screech type thing. And it, I was kind of getting close to dozing off, and it scared me pretty good, but uh back to the deer here it comes and it's getting daylight and i can just make out this big body deer there and you know like i said the cell camera had died so i really just had no clue what was standing there and then here, another minute goes by and i can make out some horns and i'm just praying you know if this is that big sucker big nasty right here i might just cry and sure enough once I can see with my binoculars, because you know how early you can see with binoculars versus being able to see through your peep sight and shoot a deer. Uh, it was also cloudy that day, too. So, like, on legal shooting line, I was plenty good. 
it was just I just didn't think I could see good enough through my peep sight because I was having to hunt out of a ground blind then with my foot being hurt. So there, I, I finally figured out it was him, and there was like five other bucks in there that they weren't too big, but they were in between me and him. And so I'm already kind of starting to shake because I'm just looking at him. This is, I guess you caught the second time I've ever seen him because I had just seen him earlier that that morning and whenever he drove by or whenever he came across in front of my four-wheeler and he's just massive i mean he was he ended up weighing 256 pounds but just to see him in person and his mass it, it was just unbelievable and time goes on and i know my time because those two days before he once it hit daylight, he didn't give it but five minutes probably before he just took on out of there. And I was worried that because it's really thick up in there where I had the ground blind at. It was on the edge of this lake. There was more button willows in there, which butted up to the grass that I believe that he bedded in because that's where he came from. Well, I'd already drawn back on him like two other times. And I just could not make him out through my peep sight because it was still so dark because it was very overcast and everything just looked like a blur looking through there. And I'm just freaking out thinking if this deer walks away and I can't see good enough through my sight, I mean, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm not going to take a unethical shot, but man, that's just going to be horrible. He's standing there at 20 yards right now and he's sitting there broadside. It's just a, too perfect of a situation and finally it just you know a cloud breaks over and the sun beams down through there and i can finally just make him out it just got just a little bit brighter that i needed to be able to fully clearly see my top pin and it wasn't helping with me being in a ground blind blocking out all the light too that other if i was in my tree stand there's no doubt i would have already shot him but he goes, this is the third time I've drawn back on him. He goes to leave, and he gets about, he starts walking directly away from me. It's like the worst possible situation. And then he, the same trail he came in on, or I assume he did, um, he cuts to the right, and he's broadside, and he's about two steps from getting in the thickest stuff that you've ever seen. And I just, I said, Mac you know what you always say i said it three times and he didn't even check up and finally i don't even know what i said i just yelled as loud as i could chopping my lungs and he turned and looked and it was about a 35 yard shot and i just put it on the money and smoked him and uh double long and sure enough he ran about 150 yards or so i was surprised he even went that far with, you know double long in him but man he was a trooper he ran 150 yards and i cut a gashing him with the uh rage hypodermic you know um but it was it was unbelievable it was something that you know the way it happened with me seeing him that morning in front of the four-wheeler and just coming out and i could see him for a long time with my binoculars yeah it was probably only you know five to ten minutes but it surely seemed like 20 to 30 as long as it took before i could actually shoot him and it was just, it was crazy, man.
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a crazy story, uh, and it's it's awesome that you were able to make that happen. Uh, and we're actually we're coming up here right now, on just at an hour. Uh, so to, to kind of start wrapping this up, Cade, um, what was your biggest takeaway or like learning experience from this? And that's probably just how we'll end this episode. Well, I would say you know, if you want to make a move, as long as you're not going to get you know, too far up in a bedding area. Don't be afraid to make a move, you know. Um, not to mention hunt, hunting a wind, you know, don't be afraid to hunt an almost bad wind like we talked about because that can be a deciding factor whether or not you're going to kill a deer because a lot of those deer are going to come in only using their nose downwind, especially if it's a bait site. You know, those deer didn't get that big by being stupid. So if they come in downwind, they are always going to be able to know if the predator's up there by the bait site, and then they're just not going to go there. That's just, I mean, they're smart animals. So if you can have a hunt up wind where you're not directly downwind, or I should say upwind, that's your best case scenario. And then back to, you know, you can always hunt near bedding area and you'll have a great chance at killing that deer because if you if you don't ever make a move if you're wanting to you know someone else could have done the same thing i did or similar and killed that deer by getting closer to the lake where he was bedded and i would have never killed him but i went ahead and branched out and made a move rather than sitting in my lock on that i'd always hunted because that lock on i've killed five good bucks out of over the years and I don't ever do what I did for this deer, and I'm surely glad I did. I branched out and made a move, and it paid off big time. Making a move. That's awesome. Uh, okay, dude, it's, it's awesome to have you on the podcast. Again, congratulations on an absolute monster deer, dude. Uh, just huge body, huge frame. I mean, he's got it all. Uh, and, a, and an awesome story to go go ahead with it uh, or go along with it. So, Cade, again, uh, congratulations. Appreciate you coming on the show. And, and, of course, you know, to any of the other listeners out there, you know, if you were like Cade and have success uh, using something that you've learned from the podcast or something that was impactful for you, uh, shoot us a message like Cade did. Cade reached out to us on Instagram, but you can shoot us a message on Instagram, Facebook, or even an email at our contact page on the website. And uh, maybe we interview you for a future episode of the Southern Outdoors and the podcast. So, Kay, thank you again for coming on. And, uh, hey, listen, now you can start playing for a 2022 season. That's right. Thank you, man. It was fun. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman. And thank you to Blackberry Smoke for the music for the podcast. Also, to follow along with us, make sure you check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoorsman. Until next time, y'all stay Southern. Look, last summer, y'all heard us talk a bunch about the Mobile Hunters Expo. It was an incredible event. A bunch of you guys came out to meet us. 
We got to talk to, I don't even know how many listeners. If you heard all that last year and you were like, dang, that sounded cool, I should have went to that. Here's your chance. You need to make it to this one. It's June 28th through June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. All right. Giving you a heads up here. So go ahead and mark it on your calendar. June 28th through June 30th, Dalton, Georgia is going to be the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. We're going to be there. A bunch of our past podcast guests are going to be there. There's going to be seminars. All of the mobile hunting companies are going to be there for you to try out gear before you buy it. It's like the one event of the year where all of the the like the mobile hunter ecosystem just kind of congregates in one place. And Chris and Josh and the guys have done an absolutely phenomenal job putting this thing together over the last couple of years. And it keeps getting better every year. So like I said, make sure you come see us. We're going to have a gigantic stack of free stickers to give away to every listener that stops by the booth. And we're going to have merch there to purchase. We're going to be recording podcasts, shooting videos, all kinds of stuff. So like I said, don't miss it. You can head on over to the mobilehuntersexpo.com to look at show schedules and dates and go ahead and grab your tickets. So y'all go check it out at the mobilehuntersexpo.com.